Well, our next speaker um, is a colleague of mine for, um, well, at least 25 or 27 years, uh, Dr. George Shaw. Uh, George uh, uh, is a hematologist oncologist by training and went to the NIH after his medical training to work in uh, Bob Gallo's lab in 1981-82 and was there when the virus was discovered and made a lot of seminal discoveries of HIV in the brain. Um, he and his wife, Beatrice Hahn, have made even more discoveries about the origins of HIV, its genetic structure, the quasi-species, et cetera. And in the recent uh, last couple of years, George has turned his attention to hepatitis C, like many of us, um, and is focusing on the virology of hepatitis C. And, uh, and what he's going to talk to us today about is uh, some of the remarkable similarities between these two viruses with a special emphasis on the biology of HCV so that we can all sort of get oriented and help understand that a little better. So George is now a professor of medicine at University of Pennsylvania. I moved there about a year ago from UAB and uh, will give us an overview. Thanks. Thanks so much, Mike. Um, I think this mic is working. So um, I'll begin. I'll first uh, admit something, and that is when I started working on HCV, I was afraid of HCV I mean, in the sense that I, this was a new virus and I was used to HIV, and um, it was kind of uh, daunting to think about it. And what I, my, the point of my talk today is to illustrate uh, many of the common features between the biology and transmission of HCV and HIV-1. And I think that your vast expertise in HIV-1 will stand you quite well when you start to really dig into the uh, biological underpinnings of what you're doing in the clinic. Um, and you'll find you know far more than you ever thought you did about HCV before beginning. So I'll uh, start with that, comparative virology. Uh, the first point I'd like to make is uh, something you're well familiar with, and that is the global diversity of HCV. And you can imagine this as a daunting problem for both uh, drug resistance development and eventually vaccine development. Um, this is a phylogenetic tree of the, um, this happens to be influenza A. So if you look around the globe in any one year, uh, the uh, diameter of this little uh, bush here is the amount of global diversity in the genome of influenza A. In, in, an, in around the globe in one year. This is the global diverse, this is the diversity of HIV-1 in a single patient. Here is a, you know, subtype B HIV-1, here's global HIV-1, and here is HCV around the globe. So you just, from what you know about HIV, you can imagine diversity is going to be a problem, uh, drug resistance, et cetera. <clears throat> Next point to be made is 35 million people uh, worldwide are infected by HIV-1 today. 170 million or so are infected by HCV. So the magnitude of the problem is great globally. Now I'll bring you to something that you're quite familiar with, and that's the natural history of HIV-1. And, and this is a picture of, of what it means to become infected with HIV and the diagnostic tests that can be used to diagnose early HIV infection. You're all well familiar. On the y-axis here is the uh, plasma viral RNA level. Uh, a person becomes infected here on the x-axis at time point zero. And you're well familiar with the fact that there is about a 7 to 10 to 14 day period typically in which you have uh, 
uh, brewing HIV-1 infection, but you have no uh, clinical signs, certainly, and there are no virological markers that can detect it. And that's what we call the eclipse phase. And then you have a, an orderly progression of the appearance of viral diagnostic markers, starting with viral RNA, antigen, antibody, and the various forms of antibodies. Well, there's something that much like this that goes on with HCV. Um, one becomes exposed to HCV, whether it's intravenously, household contact, sex is less common, the mini-epidemic in, in gay men, MSMs, who are now getting HCV infected. You all get infect, exposed, and then there is some period. This is from a, a summary paper by Mike Bush, um, uh, who many of you will know, um, uh, pioneer in, in blood banking and, and, and blood-associated uh, viral pathogens, and he reviewed... Um, a large number of studies and a large no and, and, and data that would suggest that the expo between the exposure period to HCV and the first ramp up of virus, this is that same ramp up that you see with HIV-1, that could be as long as a couple months. But when you get into the literature and you start looking um, and, you, and you go to your own cases, this seems too long. And I don't think we know what the real answer is, but I think it's closer to HIV-1 than it is to what's shown on here. I think that the, 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 the mounting evidence is that the eclipse phase between the time you're infected and the time you start to see virus in the plasma is probably much closer to HIV-1, this ten, 7 to 10 to 14 days. And I, that's a take-home message. Um, but the... Uh, uh, the, the point is that we know a lot about this period because you can measure it in the blood, viral RNA, and I'm going to spend some time talking about that. We don't know so much about this period. And so the second point that I want to make is, is, the, is the result of a new study that, will, that has just come online in the issue of blood, the current issue of blood. Most of you will not have read it yet. Um, it's by Mike Bush and Harvey Alter at the NIH. And what they did was they took uh, humans who were plasma donors. And so the, the plasma donors, normal plasma donors, were donating twice a week plasma for months and years on end. And then they identified a small fraction of those people who became HCV infected. But because they had stored their plasma for the preceding several months, they, could, they took patients who clearly became acutely HCV infected, and they marched backwards in time for several months, taking twice weekly plasma donations. And they took these from a large number of patients in this period here, and they injected that plasma into chimpanzees, which is a good uh, animal model for HCV. And the result was, the question they wanted to ask was, are, is the plasma here infectious? Is it a risk for our blood system? Because the, the suggestions was, were that it was. And in fact, the answer was, this plasma, despite supposedly having very low detectable viral RNA in it, with the, with the, 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 the most sensitive techniques, despite having a little bit of, of HCV RNA in it, this plasma here for the preceding two months was uniformly not transmissible. In other words, it did not contain infectious virus in it. And it was a clear-cut result out this month in blood. And that's very reassuring that there isn't a, a major uh, 
problem brewing with in regard to the uh, to, to risk associated with blood. So anyway, I thought that was brand new information, new to me, and I thought it was important. Let me just move on to the genomic organization of HIV-1 and the, 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 the in vivo biology of HIV-1 versus HCV. You're all well familiar with the genomic organization of HIV-1, and you know the drug targets. There are drug targets in poll. There's both, you know, RT and there's integrase. There's protease. They're all in this region here, uh, labeled pole. And then fusion, you know, there's a, there are fusion inhibitors that will hit the envelope. That's represented in this slide that you're well familiar with, but we're going to morph to HCV in a moment. So there are, there are fusion inhibitors, there are RT inhibitors, there are integrase inhibitors, there are protease inhibitors. <clears throat> Don't need to review that. But HCV is somewhat similar to HIV-1. First of all, both viruses are simply plus-strand RNA viruses. Both viruses, they're not segmented, they just have a single plus-strand RNA. Second thing that is similar about that, they're almost exactly the same size. Both of them just shy of 10 kilobases in length. So the genetic target, if you will, of both viruses is analogous. Um, the next thing is that, you know, as you might imagine, there are um, uh, a series of genes in HCV. They're a bit different than HIV, of course. The HCV genome is illustrated here. There are genes going from left to right, or 5 to 3 prime, corresponding to the core gene or the core antigen genes that make the structure of the virus. There's envelope E1 and E2 that make the envelope of the virus. There is NS2 and NS3. Um, NS3 is uh, the, the, the prime of one of interest because NS3 is, confer, is, uh, encodes the protease gene. So Baseprevir, Teleprevir target the gene product of NS3. NS4B is uh, an important gene. It forms part of the or responsible for forming part of the replication complex in the cytoplasm that I'll show you in the next slide. NS5A is a major target of, the, of, a, of a new drug, as you are well familiar. It's also involved in the membranous web and the, and the replication complex. And NS5B, that you all are now so familiar with, that's the polymerase gene, analogous to HIV-1. It's the major target of the new Pharmacet slash Gilead drug. Now, I'm not going to spend much, any time really talking about the drugs and the effects of the drugs on these proteins and the effects of the drugs on viral load kinetics because David is going to talk about that in, in detail this afternoon. But I do want to highlight the genomic organization of hepatitis C, the fact that just like with HIV-1, you have polymerase targets, you have protease targets of drugs, and thinking back to about the genetic diversity of HCV, these genes vary, uh, mutate, as they do in HIV, and it is the same challenge um, in regard to, um, to, to drug therapy. Um, the life cycle of hepatitis C is different from HIV-1, of course, and it will have important implications in terms of curative strategies. As you know, HIV-1, uh, the replication machinery, much of it is in the nucleus that the big problem with HIV-1 is the virus integrates in chromosomal DNA, 
and that uh, integration in the nucleus creates a long-lived reservoir. Um, HCV doesn't go to the nucleus, so um, virus enters uh, the cell. Um, it's a plus-strand RNA. The first thing that the plus-strand RNA does is it serves as the, the messenger RNA, if you will. It's full length, and the first thing the virus has to do is to allow that messenger RNA to be translated and create all the proteins that I showed you on the previous slide that are necessary to set up the virus's machinery to make new virus. So that's illustrated here, the, the full-length RNA. The first thing it does is it's translated into all the proteins that I mentioned on the previous slide, the core proteins, the envelope proteins, the polymerase proteins, the proteases, all the components that are necessary for the life cycle. Um, once those proteins are made, <clears throat> the ones that are essential for replication um, coalesce in and around the Golgi apparatus and the endoplasmic reticulum, and, and they, they form these, this web, if you will, for lack of better words. It's a, a web of membranes that's simply called the membranous web. And now you have, instead of 5 to 3 prime, you have both 5 to 3 and 3 to 5 prime negative strand RNA together with plus strand RNA all mixed in this membranous web, making products, uh, nucleic acid products. The plus five, the plus strand, if you will, this strand is down here, will make negative strand. The negative strand makes positive strand. And that goes back and forth and back and forth. And there are as many as um, 40 of these replication complexes in a typical hepatocyte. So that's something else, else though, that's a bit different than HIV. Instead of one provirus in the nucleus, or one or two or three, making the products of the, of the virus, and including making new viruses, typically for a, a day, right? HIV-1, the average productively infected cell, lives about a day. Um, and everything is encoded off a single provirus, and then that, that cell is gone. The, the hepatitis C and, and <clears throat> HCV sorry, HCV in the hepatocyte is different. It sets up as many as 40 of these machines, and a typical hepatocyte that's pumping out virus might live for 100 days or more instead of one day. Yet, ironically, when you add potent drugs, I think you hear from David and others, when you add potent drugs, and if you can avoid drug resistance, the lifespan of this cell goes from 100 days to about one day or less. And so when you give potent therapy, the, this, this machinery in the liver that would normally be pumping out virus in uh, estimated to be about, about uh, 10 billion or more per day, that gets shut off, and that replication machinery may only persist for a day. And so curative strategies are very different for HCV than HIV. Okay, <clears throat> so um, with that as a background, I just want to, for, for your, your, your interest's sake, if you will, show you some more comparisons between HIV-1 and HCV. Now thinking more about transmission in, among different risk groups and persistence of the virus, and then ultimately just finishing off with some some, some interesting things for you to consider going forward. So the challenge, HIV-1 and HCV exist in nature as quasi-species, I mentioned. My first postdoc 25 years ago 
guy's name of Sag happens to be the same one that's with us today, and he published my, the first paper in my lab uh, uh, when I moved to Alabama in Nature, and this was the quasi-species nature of HIV-1. So Mike and I go way back, and I couldn't help but throw this in. <clears throat> um, in a newly infected patient, the time between exposure to HIV-1 and HCV and the first detection of um, RNA uh, in the blood, is the eclipse phase, as I said, we think it's closer to 10 to 14 days, not a longer period. And, it's, and most of that time, it's not infectious for other people. Um, <clears throat> Virus-host interactions are not directly observable during this time, and so if we ever hope to understand some of the early events of HIV, we had to take, and HCV, a different path. So with HIV-1, as you know, uh, uh, virus is, is different than HIV, HCV. Most of the transmissions globally are mucosal, and so virus is deposited. This illustrates in the vagina and cervix, but, but it could be in the rectum. Uh, virus is dumped onto a mucosal surface, and then there is a period of about 10 days in which virus is is making its way through submucosa and draining lymphatics and so forth eventually, but it gets to the, it, to the, to the regional lymph nodes, the regional uh, lymphatic tissue, and to the galt in the, in the gut. And there's this explosive amplification of virus, um, and it eventually pours out into the blood. HCV, if it's a drug addict, it's or you know, injection drug use, uh, it's, a different, it's a different pathway of entry. But the timing is not too terribly different. A little faster in HCV. Um, thinking about HIV-1, we developed a model then. We said if there is an inoculum on the mucosal surface, and if transmission is uncommon, which it is in HIV-1, we, we suspect you know, there's obviously some sort of bottleneck there. And we um, wanted to ask the question, what might be the explanation for that and the consequences of that bottleneck? And this is a model, it's an illustration, a cartoon, if you will, to illustrate some of the kinds of things that could happen with HIV that we imagined. Well, we imagined that, that, that some viruses would try to get across, but the virus itself would be defective. Other viruses would get across the mucosa, but they wouldn't be very fit. They would just wouldn't grow fast. They would just die out. Um, they might get across and start to grow and then develop a lethal mutation. Um, and, and then finally, we suspected, and obviously we knew that some viruses got across and then went, underwent this explosive amplification. And we, we, we hypothesized that, that if we looked about a month, 14 to 28 days into infection, at the virus diversity in the, in the plasma, we might actually be able to use genetic tools and genetic tricks, if you will, to infer how each of these millions and billions of viruses had evolved, if they did, from single viruses. That was the hypothesis. And so we, we used genetic tricks to try to do that. And I'm going to show you that a couple slides for HIV-1, and then I'm going to show you how we're doing that for HCV and the implications for HCV. So the strategy was to combine something called single genome amplification it's just a, a genetic trick of how to, how to amplify viral sequences um, without artifacts and then, and then uh, interpret that data in, in, in mathematical models, phylogenetic models. And I won't go into the details, but basically the essence is you take blood plasma and you amplify individual viral RNA molecules without introducing errors. And there's a whole 
business about how to do that. But I'm going to show you two slides like this. These are like the two data slides that, that I would hope that you would just stick with me on these for a minute because there, such profound implications come out of these two slides. This is a natural history slide. That's supposed to be a small arrow pointing right here to kind of the upslope. This is plasma viral RNA reaching 10 to the 7th. Uh, before antibodies turn positive, this is an acutely infected person. So plasma taken from this time point was sequenced like I just told you. And we sequenced, in this case, the whole envelope gene, about 2,500 base pairs. And that envelope sequence is represented on this slide two ways. It's, it's represented by all these horizontal lines here. They're about 2,500 base pairs. And so each line is an envelope sequence from the plasma. And all these lines up here that don't have any little tick marks in them, they're all identical to themselves. And each of these represents a random mutation. And that same genetic diversity is represented in this vertical line here with these numbers. Each number corresponds to a number over here. They're the same envelope. So, so these numbers that lie on the vertical line here are, are sequences that are identical to themselves. And if they have a little tick mark, one or two tick marks, they differ by one or two nucleotides. So this data and this data is the same, same sequence. But the, the, the discovery here was that the, the consensus of these sequences the consensus sequence represented the virus that jumped across the vaginal mucosa 14 to 28 days earlier. And, and that was kind of a, 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 a game-changing notion because people didn't know you could do that. It's as simple as I just showed you right there. And if that's true, what that means is you can begin to study drug resistance as it's being transmitted from one person to another. This happens to be the envelope gene. We are interested for some other reason. But you can now, and I'll show you an example of that, begin to study the transmission of drug resistance and then the uh, reversion of resistant mutants back to wild type and vice versa. You can, you can examine transmission and then the evolution of drug resistance. And I'll show you examples of all those things. And so a summary of 112, 102 patients studied that way led us to conclude that we could identify transmitted founder envelope genes, in this case for HIV-1. And it's a PNS paper. I, I won't bother you with the details. But what it told us, to fast forward, was that using this technique that we called single genome amplification direct amplicon sequencing allows us to identify, in this case HIV-1, transmitted founder viruses. So we can take virtually any acutely infected person and tell you exactly the sequence of the virus that caused the, the, the infection event. That's very important for vaccine development because we can tell you what the envelope, in, this, in that case, looks like at the moment of transmission. It's also, again, important for, 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 for drug treatment in terms of understanding how resistant viruses are transmitted and how resistance evolves in an unambiguous way. And I'll show you some examples. The second thing that it was important for, because we could identify um, transmitted viruses, we could enumerate them. And so we, asked, we wanted to ask the question, for vaccines, how high is the bar? How difficult, what, what, what bar does a, an effective HIV-1 vaccine need to, to jump over? Are people getting... IV drug users, for example, getting infected with hundreds of HIV genomes, 
in which case, or viruses, it's going to be tough for a vaccine to prevent that. Or are they infected, getting infected with just one? And similarly, I'll show you the data for HCV in a moment. Are, they, are drug addicts typically getting infected with hundreds of HCV genomes, viruses, or just a few? Um, in this case, we looked at heterosexuals, men who have sex with men, and injection drug users for HIV-1 infection. And this is the result. It's a little bit uh, busy slide, but not too. Here's heterosexuals, HSX. Here's MSM. Here's IDU. And the, the data that you really want to look at is over here in this column right here. It says that the median number of viruses that confer productive infection in heterosexuals is one. The median number in MSM, the range was a little higher, one to six, one to ten, but the median was still one. And surprisingly, in injection drug users, the number of viruses that are conferring infection were two, not hundreds. And so it gives you a sense of the inoculum, if you will, or the, the, the multiplicity of infection that confers infection uh, for HIV-1 in these risk groups. And in a minute, I'll show you about HCV. I'm going to pass over that, that slide right there in the, in the sake of time. Um, I have about, uh, I think, uh, uh, seven minutes to finish, so I will switch to HCV and tell you kind of our latest and most exciting data uh, that's analogous uh, to what I just told you. So with HCV, um, the background is um, that, again, uh, molecular features of HCV transmission and early variation or diversification are unclear, but could be important for vaccines and drug treatment. And so we wanted to ask, can the genetic bottleneck of HCV transmission be defined precisely? Can we understand what's, how these patients are getting infected at a molecular level? Can actual transmitted HCV genomes be identified? Can full-length trans uh, genomes be identified? And can this data inform rational strategies for drug treatment and prevention? So again, the strategy is similar to what we did before. We're taking 20 acutely infected patients, plus some controls. We're using our single genome amplification uh, method, which I highlighted here. In this case, we're taking blood plasma, and we're amplifying and sequencing HCV RNA. Um, we are coming back to our, our genetic organization, and we're amplifying the five prime half of the genome for two reasons. One is because we need to have a large piece to look at, but second of all, we wanted to include the protease gene, where the drug resistance mutations to Bisepravir and Teleprevir are targeted. And I'll show you some of that data. Again, we're coming back to our familiar natural history slide, and we're, say, we're hypothesizing that if we take sequences from the ramp-up phase of infection, we can infer the transmitted virus here at a time when it can't be measured, and we can quantify it and characterize it. And so here, is, um, here are 16 patients who are normal plasma donors. They have um, excluded, they've, they've taken questionnaires, they've denied risk behaviors that would put them at risk for HCV, but it's a, it's a large denominator. There are hundreds of thousands of these patients, people who donate their plasma, and this is a small fraction of them. These are 16 who became acutely infected with HCV. So on the x-axis of each of these boxes are weeks, one through seven, and on the y-axis is log base 10 of viral RNA. So, in each case, I'll just do one patient here. 
The patient is, is donating, virus, uh, donating plasma twice weekly for months on end, and then he's donating here, and then all of a sudden this third donation here is found to have viral RNA in it, HCV viral RNA. And, uh, and, and it's gone from undetectable to 100,000, and the next week, next three days later it's at a million, and then it's up to 10 million. So a typical seroconversion, quotes, if you will, for HCV. And that's true for all 16 patients here. So we asked the question, can we look at the sequences of these early samples and infer the transmitted founder viral sequence back here when we can't measure it? Can we quantify it? Can we enumerate it? And then can we learn anything about drug resistance or other things about it? And so this is a phylogenetic tree again, one of these genetic trees of a chronically infected patient. And the only thing you need to see here is that it's a large bush and that every one of these tips you know, if you go, you have to go back to the origin here. So these differ from these. They're, they're all, all these tips differ from the other, and by about 2 or 3%. That's what this code here looks like. Here is the first acutely infected patient that we studied. And again, I showed you an earlier slide of a tree like this. And so you can begin to, 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 to interpret the data yourself. Here is the sample time point. So this is undetectable virus down here. It's in logarithmic or exponential growth here. It's taken when the patient <clears throat> has a uh, viral load of about a million here. And this is the genetic diversity in the entire five prime half of the genome. And what you can see here is that most sequences are identical to themselves, and then there's a smattering of random changes. And this smattering of random changes um, tells us that the virus, first of all, has gone from here to here in diversifying uh, just, you know, randomly. And secondly, it tells us that we can use the coalescent or we can use the consensus sequence here to infer the actual sequence of that transmitted virus. So this was a great thing. And then all sorts of predictions immediately jump out. That, the first prediction is, well, if that's true, if you, if you sample multiple time points here, if it's really true, they all coalesce back to here, multiple time points should coalesce back. And secondly, um, the virus should continue to diversify. And that's what's shown here. Here we take one, two, three, four time points. They're color-coded. And what that's showing is that all of these sequences here coalesce to the same sequence back here. And as you walk from red to blue to green to black, they increase their diversification. So the model seems to be correct. The second thing would You'd, that would be implied is that if here the patient was actually infected by more than one virus, in this case three viruses, you should get three separate phylogenetic trees or rakes of near identity. And so there are all these sequences here that are all virtually identical to themselves. They coalesce back to a single unambiguous virus here, but this patient happened to be infected by three different viruses. So you have the, this group, this group, this group. So you can imagine if this guy had gotten infected from someone who carried drug resistance, one or more of these virus strains might have been resistant. And, that's, and we study that kind of stuff. So I'm going to uh, just skip over for the sake of time a couple of those slides that all show the same thing. Here's another acutely infected person um, sequences where, you know, you look at these sequences and they look quite different than anything I showed you. We were puzzled by this. And it led us to an important discovery about HCV that we did not anticipate. 
That discovery was, and I don't have time to go into the details of this phylogeny, but these individual little rakes are individual little viruses. This guy was infected with multiple viruses, and we could infer by the genetic distance between them that the guy must have been infected from another person who was acutely infected. So if you go to Google and you put in Google acute-to-acute -acute HIV-1 transmission, what you get out are 1,000 hits, and they say that at least 25% of the African epidemic, maybe upwards to 40 to 50% of the African HIV-1 epidemic, is driven by acute-to-acute-to-acute-to-acute HIV-1 transmission. And that's because in HIV-1, going back to some of my earlier slides, that early infection period, when viral titers are so high, there are no neutralizing antibodies. And so people with acute HIV-1 infection are believed to be hyperinfectious, and the epidemiology suggests that. It's consistent with that. So HIV-1, as you know, is acute to acute to acute. HCV, if you type in Google, acute to acute HCV, you get no hits, zero. It's never been described. And in our first 20 patients, we found three examples of acute to acute HCV transmission. What we think is actually happening is it may be contributing importantly to the mini epidemic of, of HCV infection in gay men. We think that in the, in, that's, that's being described now, right now globally. It may also contribute to the drug addicts. But, but we think there is a hidden epidemic of acute to acute HCV transmission that we are just touching on for the first time here. And you can imagine why that's important to your practice. If you have someone who's, you know, and, and, and for health, public health, you, if, if this is true, you've got to interrupt acute to acute to acute. And so we had another patient, and that also was acute to acute. And then we finally had this last slide. This is the last data slide that I'll hit you with, and then I'll just close. This last data slide was from the, the 20th patient we studied with acute infection. And so here, this guy, this is the natural history tree right here. And, and so this guy has been, has been donating blood for two years. He has been donating every, twice a week for two years. And he's been HCV RNA negative every time. And then he, he, this sample right there all of a sudden has 10 to the, over 10 to the fifth HCV RNA molecules per ml. And you're looking at the phylogenetic tree here and, and this tree right here, the highlighter plot of that sample. We looked at this and we said, what in the world is this? This makes no sense. We can't figure out what this is until we look for drug resistance mutations. This was back in 2008. To make a long story short, every sequence on here is a double mutant to Bisepravir. Bisepravir wasn't Bisepravir in 2008. It was an experimental drug. Uh, it was, a, you know, in phase two trials. And so what we could figure out, and I'll close with this, is that there was an individual on, must have been on a Merck trial. Actually, it could have been on a Vertex trial. I can't distinguish between uh, the Teleprevir and Blisepravir here. Both mutations would, would apply. There was, there was a trial going on. Somebody was started on Bisepravir or Teleprevir. They got a, they were chronically infected. They got a profound drop in virus load. They got rapid emergence of resistance. And somehow they shared needles with our 
donor here. And, and so we can look at, we can deconvolute this tree here. We can look at the sequences and, and, and find the drug resistance mutations. And we can provide a, 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 a clear molecular explanation for this otherwise confusing tree. And it is Bisepravir slash Teleprevir uh, uh, escape. And I'll just, uh, this, that, this is really my last slide. That the, the last thing we're doing, which, which, is, which gets very germane to what you guys will be doing very soon, we're now working on the next generation protease inhibitors. And then there's going to be combination. We've studied five consecutive patients who are, were treated with a next generation, supposedly broadly uh, uh, reactive and potent second generation protease inhibitor. And five out of five patients given this drug for seven days looks like this 21 days later. Um, and so it, it, it tells you that you're going to have to use combination drugs in a skillful way to, to, to nail the virus. And I'll just leave it at that. We do have some, uh, thanks a lot, uh, George, for that yes. terrific overview of hepatitis C and the comparisons with HIV and some exciting work on uh, what happens when the virus first infects a human. Uh, we have some time for questions uh, for um, either George or uh, me. Uh, so if you want to raise your hand, go to a mic, or pass in the, the questions on the little cards, um, all, all of those here comes one right now, as a matter of fact. Dr. Shaw, would one genotype, uh, if, 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 if there is acute-to-acute uh, transmission of hepatitis C, would one genotype dominate over the other? Or would both be detectable? Um, so I, with acute-to-acute -acute transmission, um, I think that what my guess is, and I don't know because we're just studying, beginning to study this, is that what one would typically find is the most fit virus or viruses being transmitted. And, uh, and, and that would be um, defined in some way that I can't define for you right now. I'm not sure what, what yet, what what constitutes a most fit virus? I, I draw analogies back to HIV, and I think about viruses that are trying to escape from uh, CTLs, for example. So what, what you hear about in HIV is that um, viruses that have escaped in one individual who has a particular HLA conformation um, can be transmitted to the next individual, but there may be in, because there's a different HLA context in that next individual, that virus may not be so fit in that individual. And so it may, it may have less of a growth advantage. So I think, just, I think the short answer is the most fit viruses tend to be transmitted and to replicate, but, but sometimes fitness is defined by the host immune system. Sometimes it's defined by inherent properties of the virus. George, can one virus infect someone? Does your, do your data support the notion that with HCV, a single virus can be the founder and yes. infect someone? In fact, it's commonly that. Uh, Someone is asking about how easy is it for uh, hepatitis C to be 
transmitted outside of the drug use population. And, and Dr. Shaw did uh, mention that he thinks that, that his data might help explain why, why there's uh, transmission between uh, men uh, having sex with other men. There have been studies of chronically infected individuals, not the acute-to-acute kind of thing that he's talking about, looking at nearly 900 sexual partners where the one partner is positive, the other one's negative, uh, and they have sex about 1.8 times a week. You can use your imagination on the 0.8. And, uh, the, uh, and there have been no instances of sexual transmission uh, in that context. So uh, the epidemiology would also support the notion that when transmission um, through mucosal surfaces occurs, it either requires some break in the mucosa, like with bleeding or traumatic sex, or perhaps with high uh, unchecked replication uh, in the acute phase. Uh, are there any rapid HCV screening tests? Uh, yeah, because I was talking about the importance of getting testing out there, and so it's important to know that there is an FDA-licensed uh, rapid test for hepatitis C detection that could be done at point of care, the, 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 similar to HIV, uh, and uh, efforts to uh, also add um, um, other dimensions to that testing uh, going through FDA right now. So that, yes, there is a point of care. That detects in exposure, antibodies, not ongoing infection with RNA. That still requires that you'd send some serum or plasma to LabCorp or Quest or something like that. Unfortunately, we haven't, we don't have that capability um, uh, at, the point, at the point of care right now. Um, yeah, I think we're, nice comments, but not all of these are good for prime time. Um, Yeah, what about 15% of, uh, is anything known about why 15% of people clear HCV infection without treatment? So spontaneous resolution, um, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll field that one too. The, the, there are several predictors of spontaneously resolving. So anywhere between 15 and 40% of uh, persons that are infected with hepatitis C will clear the infection uh, uh, without any treatment. And the strongest predictors are being a woman, uh, being uh, young and uh, having a certain genetic sequence uh, around the genes for the lambda interferons. So if you have all those favorable characteristics, in fact, you have more than a one in two chance of spontaneously resolving. Uh, if you have none of those, then uh, you, you have more like 85% uh, chance of persisting. The other thing I didn't mention is HIV co-infection, which also increases the risks of chronic infection. Um, any reservoirs of HCV besides the hepatocyte? So uh, extra hepatic reservoirs. Does it replicate in PBMC uh, in your, uh, or um, sites outside the, the liver? Right. So that, I guess, is a question that's also important for um, in the transplant setting where it's oftentimes discussed because if you get rid of the old liver and if you could give drugs that would cover the new liver, you know, do you, are you still left with reservoirs? I think it's a debatable um, uh, point at this. You know, there are papers that suggest the lymphocytes are a reservoir, but there aren't many of those papers. So I think it's the liver myself. So here's a couple of, uh, a couple of questions. Uh, can, compared, how does hepatitis C morbidity and mortality compared to other causes of death um, in the United States? So, uh, you know, as you know, heart disease and cancer are still number one and two. 
uh, and hepatitis C is uh, significantly less uh, than both of those. I actually don't know the number. Does anyone know the number of uh, deaths per year from colon cancer in the United States? If you did, I could compare, but I don't know that number. Um, the uh, should um, HCV antibody screening occur after colonoscopy. This, this questioner knows that there have been outbreaks of hepatitis C linked to uh, healthcare exposure. And typically they occur when there's been some breach in the normal infection control uh, procedures, including not scrubbing down the, the colonoscopes correctly. Uh, and in addition, and more frequently, it's actually taking the single-use um, vials for propofol uh, or some other, for, or even for saline, and actually using them multiple times. And that's really what's led to most of the nosocomial spread of hepatitis C, is failure to use single-use um, uh, saline or propofol uh, uh, only once, but to repeatedly use it. Sorry, I massacred that sentence, but I think it came across. So Dr. Shaw, if HCV diversifies over the course of infection, why is more diversity evident uh, in the recipient of acute infection um, compared to the recipient of a chronic infection? So the acute to acute, why did that look so diverse compared to uh, someone that's infected from a more complex quasi-species uh, from a chronically exposed person? It's a great question. Without, it's a deceptive slide. Find me at the break, and I'll, we'll talk about it. Because we're really question. excited that's about it. Yes. it it's a complicated answer. It isn't so diverse. It just looks that way. But it's it's. Uh, what did you try? What? what did you try? Okay, you sure? Yeah. Okay. So the um, the the short answer is that the we we inferred that the people because it was acute to acute infection they were getting infected by anywhere from. 10 to 30 or more viruses. And so that diversity um, appeared, it, it, there was a lot of diversity, but the magnitude of the diversity was not great. It was just a smattering of, of slightly different viruses. That's the answer. So you're right. I guess the answer is you're right. It was more diverse now that I think about it. I'm going to try one more. Um, so how do you so, – so we said that if the, if the liver is the principal reservoir, how do you get reinfected when you get a liver transplant? Why, why is it that, um, that you get reinfected all the time if, if all the virus was in the liver that you took out? Right. So I think, I mean, first of all, obviously in the entire blood compartment, um, uh, you're taking the liver out and putting a new one in fairly shortly thereafter, um, it, you know, as quickly as possible. So it's a, a, in a matter of minutes and hours until you get the new liver hooked up. And um, whatever is circulating in the blood will then reinfect the liver very efficiently because viral loads are you know, substantially high in those patients, many of those patients. Second of all, um, there probably are reservoirs of the virus, you know, stuck on follicular dendritic cells. HIV sticks on follicular dendritic cells and then slowly elutes off. I suspect the same is happening with HCV. And, you know, I, there could be other reservoirs that are just hard to document, like certain other cells that we just don't understand fully. Well, we've, we've had some additional questions that are terrific about the virology, actually some very sophisticated questions about bottlenecking and that sort of thing. So I'm going to ask that you find Dr. Shaw during the break uh, because we, uh, we do need to – I'm going to hand him his stack of, of, of basic virology, and he will be with a fields textbook in the back 
because uh, some, some, some of you all are very sophisticated. Thank and uh, But thanks a lot for, to George for, for that. Um,